The Tiger Tamer Who Went to Sea from History Extra charts the life of a remarkable Victorian, Britain's original long-distance wheelbarrow pedestrian. New episodes are out every Thursday or listen to the whole series immediately ad-free by subscribing to History Extra Plus on Apple Podcasts or listening on historyextra.com. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. Earn up to 3% daily cash back on every purchase every day. Then grow it at 4.50% annual percentage yield when you open a savings account with Apple Card. Visit apple.co forward slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card subject to credit approval. Savings available to Apple Card owners subject to eligibility. Savings accounts provided by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, member FDIC. Terms apply. As you may already know, this podcast is produced by the team behind BBC History magazine. And we're offering you the chance to try six issues of Britain's best-selling history magazine for just $9.99. That's a saving of 72% on the shop price. To find out more and take advantage of this offer, visit buysubscriptions.com forward slash podcast. And if you're based in the US, you can subscribe for just $49.99 for 13 issues, saving 65%. To find out more and for all other countries, head to buysubscriptions.com forward slash podcast. Both these offers end on the 15th of May 2021. <laughs> Welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. In 1920s America, flappers in New York sipped cocktails. The southern states did a roaring trade in homebrewed whiskey, and rum runners smuggled barrels upon barrels of liquor into the country. But all the while, the manufacture and sale of alcohol was illegal. In the latest episode of our Everything You Wanted to Know series, we get to grips with prohibition. Our sub-editor, Rhiannon Davies, spoke to the historian Timothy Hickman, who answers listener queries and popular online search questions relating to the ban on booze. So welcome to the latest episode of our Everything You Wanted to Know series. And this week, we're talking about prohibition. I'm joined by Dr. Timothy Hickman, who will be answering the questions that you've sent in, as well as some popular online search queries. So to start things off, I thought it would be good to have a back to basics question. So this is a popular online search query, and it is very simply, what is prohibition and how long did it last for? Yeah, thanks. Uh, thanks for asking, Rhiannon. Thanks for having me. Um, Prohibition refers generally to alcohol prohibition in the United States. Uh, it was part of the 18th Amendment, uh, which was passed in 1919 and comes into play in 1920. It was illegal to either manufacture or to sell 
alcohol in the United States uh, starting then, and it lasted up until 1932, 1933 is when it finally uh, finally comes to an end. So it was illegal throughout the United States to either manufacture or to sell alcohol over those years. And Caitlin Jewell from Instagram wants to know, why was it introduced? Well, it's important to understand that that alcohol was a, a very big health problem in the United States through the 19th century. It's still a health problem today, uh, you know, most everywhere. We hear it all the time in, in Britain now as well. But it was much bigger then than it is is now. Uh, beginning in the, the 1820s or 1830s, uh, we see a very strong temperance movement in the United States begin to arise. Uh, likewise, in Britain, the temperance movement is very strong. You have to keep in mind that in the, the 1830s in the United States, the, the per capita alcohol consumption level was about triple what it is today. Okay, And this caused huge problems. Uh, it caused the, 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 the problems that alcohol always causes, uh, family issues particularly, domestic violence, inability for men to support families. It's overwhelmingly a male, uh, male issue. And this goes through the society at, at all sorts of levels. That continues to grow uh, throughout the 19th century as uh, industrial capitalism uh, becomes the way of the land uh, more and more in the United States. Alcohol becomes more of a problem. On the one hand, uh, employers and uh, various other social institutions begin to rely more and more on ideas like efficiency and timing and workers need to show up and they need to be on top of things and they need to work hard in order to make the profits that, that they expect. That's a lot different than an older sort of rural society that works on much different uh, sort of rhythms. Um, likewise, industrialization also leads to a lot of dangerous, uh, a lot of dangerous things. Working in a factory with big machines, working uh, around things that can hurt you and can hurt other people. You know, a drunken uh, railroad engineer is a problem. Um, they can hurt lots of people. So through the 19th century, the problems of alcohol continue to grow, both, you know, at, at the family level and at, uh, you know, broader sort of societal levels as well. This kicks off a very strong temperance movement, beginning in the 1820s and moving forward for at least 100 years. Uh, and it continues to grow. Many people support it uh, and want to see alcohol at least restricted, if not banned entirely. You know, probably you know condensing that story and moving along quickly. Uh, by the 1870s, uh, the 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 real big step along that that uh, route is taken by American women. Um, beginning in Hillsborough, Ohio, in 1873, a group of women, after hearing a speaker come to their town and talk about how his mother had gone and prayed at a local uh, saloon to close it, and that that then it finally closed, they were inspired and they went out on the street, organized into groups, and started praying in front of saloons and in front of pharmacies to try to get them to stop serving alcohol to the town's men. Uh, this was something that was absolutely unprecedented, right? Large numbers of women start uh, taking to the streets in order to close saloons. This spreads through Ohio, and it starts to spread throughout the Midwest uh, further. This was, as I say, in, in 1873. By the end of the 1870s, the, the this idea of a woman's crusade, which is what it was called, uh, becomes, you know, takes institutional form in the Women's Christian Temperance Union. Uh, 
And the WCTU is the largest uh, organization for political organization for women that the U.S. had ever seen uh, by a very, very long ways. This is the first time when you see large, large numbers of organized women taking to the streets to control men's behavior. And that's a huge step, not just in the history of alcohol, uh, but in the history of women's rights in the U.S. Uh, the WCTU is soon led by Francis, uh, Francis Willard, uh, who was a phenomenally able and talented organizer uh, who organized the WCTU and uh, expanded its remit into other women's rights principles. Essentially, uh, these women began to realize with so many of them active, so many of them trying to stop men from drinking, uh, that if they were ever going to succeed at this, there was something that they needed. And that thing was the vote, right? And so many, many much more conservative women were converted to the cause of women's suffrage because of the alcohol question, because of the WCTU. Uh, it expands into an international uh, organization. The World Women's Christian Temperance Organization in Britain is, again, another very strong force led in Britain by Isabel Somerset, close friend and associate of uh, Francis Willard. And they pushed very strongly uh, to, to see alcohol finally banned uh, in the country. Um, the next step along that, I suppose, is the uh, organization that that uh, is probably more of a male organization than the WCTU, uh, which which clearly wasn't, um, and that's the Anti Saloon League, and that is led by a guy named Wayne Wheeler. Wheeler is another one of those incredibly competent, incredibly well organized people, and he puts together the Anti Saloon League in order to try and. Uh, prohibit alcohol. Uh, that's around 1913 or so that it begins to to really take off. They organize. They look very much like the corporations that are changing American economic culture and American political culture across the country through the last part of the 19th century. Um, and they really invent and are, are still the, you know, Wheeler is the patron saint of single issue uh, of, of uh, single-issue lobbying uh, of, of legislatures and, and congresses. In other words, as long as a candidate anywhere backed the, the, the dry laws, the dries as they were called, the anti-alcohol laws, the uh, Anti-Saloon League would back them. The Anti-Saloon League collected huge amounts of money. They were able to back candidates all over the country. They would go after candidates who were wet those who didn't support the anti-alcohol laws. And they were, as I say, incredibly successful and incredibly well-organized. They were absolutely focused on the prize, which is prohibition, and uh, they took advantage of that um, fully um, and became very, very powerful. I wanted to ask you a bit more about the supporters in particular, because obviously you've talked about women and the Anti-Saloon League. Um, but I was wondering... Does the average American, are they very pro-prohibition or is there a division in society about this? It depends on where you are and what you mean by the average American. The idea of the average American is changing, of course, through the 19th century and the late 19th century. Mm -hmm. Essentially, prohibition is very, very strongly supported in small town, white Anglo-Saxon Protestant. And again, this is evangelical Protestantism we're talking about uh, and is very strongly supported there. Okay, uh, evangelical Protestantism 
uh, arises in the U.S. and is, is formulated about the same time as the temperance movement, and they go hand in hand with one another. Evangelicals believe, uh, you know, differently than than uh, a lot of other Christian groups that sin can be purged from the world. Most Christian organizations believe that sin is is part of God's design. You shouldn't sin. You can be forgiven for your sins. You should confess your sins. You can do all of those things. Uh, but sinfulness is part of God's design. Resist it. You don't get rid of it. Evangelicals, on the other hand, believe that sinfulness can be purged, that sin can be purged from the world. And they think there's a reason to do that, because if they're successful, that will uh, help to bring about the second coming of Jesus. Okay. And so they go to work doing that and they go to work against the things that they think are sinful. Among those things, for instance, particularly in the North, is racial slavery, uh, slavery, enslaved uh, African Americans in the South. And they find it sinful because it interferes with one's ability to decide. And again, for evangelicals, you know, the salvation is a matter of personal choice. Still today, you know, evangelical meetings and revivals, they will say, who here is ready to take Jesus Christ as their personal savior today, all right? And so that matter of choice requires someone to be free. So in the case of slavery, it's clear that, that uh, you know, slavery is sinful. It, it impedes choice and along with all the other things that it does. Uh, but you could be a slave to other things than just a Southern slave master. And that is, you could very, very much be a slave to the bottle as well. So evangelicals uh, also think that, you know, people who have developed a huge habit that they don't seem to be able to break from drinking all the time are unable to choose. Uh, so that's very much part of the evangelical package, along with all of the other things that go with heavy drinking, as I said before, things like uh, domestic violence, uh, you know, responsibilities to your family, all of that sort of thing. So the evangelical Protestants are also very, very strongly um, in favor of prohibition. And so you get this entire sort of small town America that, that backs it very heavily. Where isn't it backed? Well, that would be in the big cities. Okay. And the big cities are also changing their, uh, dem the demographics are changing over the period that we're talking about as well. That is, uh, we're in a period of very high immigration. And particularly in the later part of the 19th century, what uh, we see is the so-called new immigration. And the new immigration is, doesn't mean that immigration is new. What it means is that uh, uh, the, the sources of immigration are different. And rather than the older sort of traditional immigration from Northern and Western Europe, what you see is a lot more people from Southern Europe and a lot more people from Eastern Europe. Particularly, you see, let's say, Italian Catholics and Russian Jews coming into uh, coming into the cities. Now, those cultures are very different from the cultures that had been there before, and lots of people feel uncomfortable about that, right? I don't think it's a surprise to anyone that, uh, you know, immigration challenges people in, in what they think and what they think their country is like and what they think it looks like. And so there's a lot of opposition to that. So the cities have a much different kind of demographic than those small towns, and the people in those small towns think their way of life is being threatened. Now, alcohol and drinking is much different in Europe than it is in the US. And so a lot of those cultures bring their drinking practices with them. Italians drinking wine, 
also uh, Jewish families and, and wine, you know, sacramental wine used in, in various things. They don't share those values of the small town, uh, small town Protestants. And there's, so there's a real clash there. But the support where you find it really, really strong is, is there. Now, I should add to that, though. You know, we're making this sound very much city country, the, the sort of old old world uh, white Anglo-Saxon Protestant uh, versus the, the the newer world. There were also a lot of other people that we would consider to be progressive today that were very much in favor of alcohol prohibition. Booker T. Washington, the African-American leader, you know, in the, the late 19th, early 20th century, the first real sort of major voice of, of Black America after slavery, he was absolutely in favor of it because he thought it held back African-Americans. Um, on the other side of the coin, the Ku Klux Klan uh, was very much in favor of it uh, because they thought that it made African-Americans go crazy and uh, go uh, and, and rape white women. Um, but other you know, progressive figures, a lot of people who thought of themselves as, as, as very sort of informed in terms of science and health, looked at it in, in health terms and said, no, this is, is very bad for people and we really need to uh, we, we really need to control this. Uh, you know, other sort of organizations like that, the, the International Workers of the World, which were a really very strong left-wing union. They wanted revolution and uh, the communal ownership of the means of production. Uh, they were for prohibition because again, it held workers back, they thought. So there's a wide coalition who supported, really. I mean, there are the, you know, the evangelical small town uh, people that, that uh, perhaps isn't so surprising, but it's also some of the progressive uh, figures as well that get behind it. You know, the, the temperance movement is largely based on, uh, on moral arguments, moral suasion, they called it. But again, by the later 19th century and into the early 20th, we, we start to see a different angle scientific temperance, right? The WCTU in particular, the Women's Christian Temperance Union, you know, in particular, uh, has huge influence on what's taught in the schools. So kids start to learn that to have even a sip of alcohol is likely to send you down the path uh, to, to a habit that you can't control and to all the problems that come with it. So lots of people who, you know, I suppose the comparison is something like smoking where today lots of people in order to show that they're you know, on top of science and that they believe in, in, in sort of healthcare and things like that, well, they, they don't smoke uh, because that shows that. And so there's a lot of that uh, as well. Um, you know, the, 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 the schools have a huge impact on people uh, growing up and, and the things that they think about alcohol. You know, we see that in Britain too, Band of Hope, uh, you know, taught kids in schools for years and years and years. Uh, about alcohol and its problems, but these are very much temperance organization, uh, you know, spin-offs. And in hindsight, it's easy for us to see the negatives and wonder why people would have thought that prohibition would have been a success. But did people at the time they really thought it would work? <laughs> they did think it would work. I suppose for us looking back, we would think they were incredibly naive, and maybe they were. But but people in the temperance movement thought that alcohol was something that had been foisted on the American people by, by these nasty uh, industrialists, by the brewers and by the distillers and, and by the, the uh, uh, 
saloon owners in order to get rich. And they took advantage of particularly of men. They brought them in, they, they, they liquored them up, uh, and they created habits in them. And they really thought that if you just stopped that, if you stopped them, that the light of the Lord would shine through, everybody would straighten up, all of those rough men would stay home and bounce the baby on their knee, and everything would be fine. Uh, it's just stop the distillers and the brewers. They never seem to understand that, that drinking for the majority of people isn't a problem and that it's important in their lives, uh, particularly the immigrant communities. You know, you have lots of people supporting prohibition because they thought that this was really hurting the, the sort of immigrant working class and, and, and holding them back. Uh, but they never thought to ask those people about what it meant to sit down with your family at dinner. And of course, you had a glass of wine with your, your uh with, with your meals and, and that sort of thing, or the importance of sacramental wine or, or whatever. They never thought to ask them about it, uh, but they just thought that it was holding them back. Um, and if you just removed the, the, the sellers, uh, it, would, it would lift the scourge, is essentially what they thought. So moving on now to a popular online search query, how was prohibition enforced? And we also have a question that a listener sent in, which is from Kieran Hines, who asked us via Instagram, was it enforced in every US territory? It, it, I suppose the easy answer is it wasn't enforced very well, particularly at first. They hadn't really thought this through entirely. And the initial number, I mean, it's enforced by, by federal prohibition agents, okay? But the, the initial numbers were far too small to, to deal with anything like the problem. Um, is it enforced everywhere? States are different in the U.S., so it's very, very difficult to, to determine that. Because it's a, a uh, constitutional amendment, though, it's the law of the land. So everywhere, it was illegal, again, to manufacture or sell alcohol. Again, how they enforce it and how they put the laws into place uh, in, in individual states is going to vary. The, the actual law that enforces the 18th Amendment was called the Volstead Act, and it was passed soon after. Uh, and the, the, the prohibition agents that I, I mentioned just a minute ago, they enforced the Volstead Act is what they did. Um, but again, the numbers were always inadequate to, to the task. Um, but in, you know, New York City uh, alone supposedly had 32,000 speakeasies, 32,000 places, and, and they're very difficult to count, okay? But the best estimate is about 32,000 finally at, at the peak of how many places that are available. Well, there were 200 federal agents in the entire state of New York to police that. So as you can see, it was was very, very difficult for them. Um, again, there were people in Washington, in the, uh, in the government, who were very, very keen on enforcing it, who believed in it uh, completely. Uh, Mabel Walker Willebrand was appointed uh, as, as assistant attorney general, and it was her job to go out and, and enforce this. And she seemed to believe in it entirely. She thought... Uh, that, that she was doing God's will. Um, although before she was appointed, she was someone who would occasionally have a drink and wasn't particularly, you know, strongly pro-temperance, but she was there as, as the chief enforcer. So enforcement was uneven uh, at best. Uh, it was never enforced as fully as Wayne Wheeler and, and, and the, the real sort of strong pro-temperance people would have liked. Uh, then again, would it have ever been possible 
to do such an immense task? And I think that the, the answer to that has to be no, it could never have been possible to enforce this. So I definitely want to ask you more about speakeasies in a bit. We've had quite a few questions sent in about that. Um, but before we get onto that, I wanted to delve into the police a little bit more and how they were enforcing it. Um, because we've had some questions about corruption. So Claire B from Instagram, she says, how corrupt were the police? <laughs> Very. Uh, the, the, the police corruption was rife because there was so much money in this. And, and you know, I talk more about that, I'm sure. Uh, there was so much money in it. So it was very easy to buy people off. And you could do that very easily. Again, not everyone supports this. Um, alcohol is something that had been in the culture for a very long time. You know, they drink wine in the Bible. Uh, it had been part of culture you know, for as long as there had been Western culture. And so taking it out is something that's, that's going to be is going to be tough. And so there were always people who weren't in favor of it. And when you have that kind of money around the corruption in, de- in police departments, and that's all the way to the top, uh, the, the the corruption is is unbelievable um, at at the government level too, at, at the the various highest levels. You know that is uh, in the justice department, the people who are supposed to enforce it, they're also taking bribes there. There are plenty of bootleggers who talk about you know driving up to Washington to the Capitol uh, to drop off because some of their customers are in there as well. Um, so people are customers there, but the, the corruption is at every level of enforcement. And, and, uh, and there is a huge amount of it. You know, most of the, the, the police, uh, are, are being bought off finally in places like New York City, right? Where, which was always intensely wet, was never in favor of, of prohibition at all and becomes the symbol for the, the resistance to it all. Uh, the, 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 number of people that are paid off is is, uh, is staggering. So you just said that corruption goes all the way to the top. And we've had a question about this from Mr. Gordon on Twitter. And he asks, what role did Warren Harding and the Ohio gang play? When Harding was elected president, he made his campaign manager uh, the attorney general. The attorney general is the head police officer in the United States and runs the Justice Department. That's a guy named Harry Doherty. Uh, Doherty brought his friends, the Ohio gang, uh, along with him. Now, Harding paid lip service to, to temperance. He was nominally a dry, he was a Republican, that was their position. However, they would meet once a week to play poker and they drank and this was something they didn't follow in private. Uh, in any case, Harry Doherty had a fixer, a guy named Jess Smith. Uh, Jess Smith, uh, was open to offers from anybody who was willing to make them. And most famously, probably the the, the biggest bootlegger, the so-called king of the bootleggers, is a guy named George Remus, and Re- who was based in Cincinnati, and, and we'll, we'll get to him, I'm sure, in a minute. Uh, Remus went to uh, Jess Smith and wanted to find out what it cost to... Uh, get away with anything that he wanted to get away with. Smith essentially promised Remus that even if you were arrested, you will never see a day in jail. Remus paid somewhere in the neighborhood of a quarter of a million dollars that he peeled off in in thousand dollar notes uh, on the spot. And Smith was always in George Remus's pocket then. And so that's very much part of the so-called Ohio gang. Uh, that, that, that come in. So again, the corruption, as I say, you know, going all the way to the top 
uh, you know, Jeff Smith is uh, Harry Doherty's fixer. Harry Doherty is the attorney general. He doesn't go any higher than, uh, than that. Um, and so they, they clearly were open to uh, offers. And what would you say the biggest scandal is that Prohibition led to? <sighs> the biggest single scandal. It's, it's very hard, hard to say. Probably the biggest, I mean, do, does it count as a scandal, is the violence uh, with the organized crime, uh, in the organized crime figures. So often, the, the, you know, the, the people being shot down in the streets, I mean, the numbers are, are just crazy, particularly in, in Chicago, in the, uh, uh, in the, the so-called beer wars. Um, in 1926, 76 mobsters are gunned down in the streets of Chicago, 54 more in 1927, right? And the police are, are, are not enforcing this. They're, they're looking the other way. People are being shot down all the time. So to think of a single scandal, I suppose, you know, the most famous of the gangsters is Al Capone, who becomes famous in uh, 1926 when a Chicago prosecutor is shot down again for meddling with the empire that uh, Capone is building in Chicago. So that's, that's, perhaps the most famous instance of it. Um, again, the, the, the corruption spreads everywhere around alcohol. It goes back to before prohibition, again, with the, 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 you know, those who resisted it, uh, the brewers, you know, the, the, led by Adolphus Bush, German immigrant who went into business with his father-in-law, uh, named Anheuser, Anheuser Bush remains one of the world's largest brewers. It certainly was in the late 19th century. They had paid off everybody. They paid off politicians. They paid off newspaper editors. They paid off everyone. One of the reasons prohibition succeeds is because the level of corruption connected to, to alcohol money and to the, uh, the, the brewers' uh, association. Now, it didn't help the Brewers Association that they were heavily German. They conducted their business in German. They took the side of Germany initially in the First World War. That didn't go well for them, uh, finally, and as you can well imagine. So the connection of corruption and alcohol is, is a longer story than, than, just, uh, than just prohibition. It, it had been there a long time, but I, I suppose the biggest sort of scandal stories are uh, are to do with I, I think the violence really and the, the fact that uh, that, that the uh, anti-prohibition laws or that the prohibition laws aren't being enforced uh, nor the violence that, that attended them still to come on the history extra podcast before there were somewhere in the neighborhood of 32,000 uh, speakeasies by the, the, the late 1920s. Now, a speakeasy could be anything. That could be somebody in an apartment with two bottles of, of whiskey uh, who opens up and wants to make some money. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? 
you need indeed. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. Earn up to 3% daily cashback on every purchase every day. Then grow it at 4.50% annual percentage yield when you open a savings account with Apple Card. Visit apple.co forward slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card subject to credit approval. Savings available to Apple Card owners subject to eligibility. Savings accounts provided by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, member FDIC. Terms apply. So let's talk more about organized crime, obviously such a big part of the story of prohibition. And you mentioned Al Capone in your last answer. I was wondering if, um, to start off with, you could give us kind of a brief overview of who Al Capone is for any listeners who aren't aware yeah, Al, Al Capone is is the most famous uh, of the gangsters of the 1920s. It's not because what he did is so particularly different than what lots of others were doing. It's it's because he loved publicity. And he was happy to do interviews, he was happy to talk freely about what he was doing. He dressed up in in, you know, Santa Claus outfits uh for local children. He was happy to be in the newspapers. He had no problem with that at all. So he becomes very famous. He becomes the symbol of of that. He was, of course, an extremely violent person. Uh, the son of Italian immigrants from Sicily uh, had had uh, come to New York. Capone was born in New York. Uh, eventually, he leaves and goes to Chicago in, in his early 20s, 21, 22. He had already murdered two people in, in New York by that point. And he becomes the enforcer for a guy named Johnny Torrio, who was... Uh, organized crime figure in Chicago who starts in early in the, the uh, early in prohibition uh, bootlegging alcohol that is selling illegal alcohol, distributing illegal alcohol. And there is a huge amount of money to be made in it. He goes to work for Torrio again, develops a reputation as a fearsome guy, which he was, he's an extremely violent person. Um, eventually because of, of the, the, fights that start between the organized crime outfits as, as they muscle in and really begin to take over the trade. Um, figures like Torrio try to organize uh, the, the, the various crime uh, groups within New York. And this spreads across ethnic groups, right? I mean, the cliche is sort of the, the Italian mafia, but there's also Jewish uh, uh, gangsters, there are Irish gangsters, Various groups divided up largely by ethnicity and then and, and, and others as well across the city. So they try to organize. Um, sometimes it goes well. They all agree. They agree on their, their own little areas. Nobody is to violate anybody else's area. Nobody is to hijack anybody else's liquor trucks, whatever. They still do it and they, they break it. And this causes the continual fights. Um, eventually, after... Uh, trying to purge some of the other gangs. Uh, one of them gets angry. They shoot up Johnny Torrio. Torrio decides he has enough. He goes back to New York and he leaves the entire operation to uh, Al Capone, who becomes the uh, you know, central organized crime figure selling alcohol uh, for the most part. He was also involved in other things, prostitution particularly, uh, but selling alcohol in, in Chicago and becomes very, very famous for that. They finally arrest him, uh, you know, in, in uh, what is it, around 1930. Um, they finally arrest him for income tax evasion. You know, income tax is, is relatively new uh, in the United States. Um, and uh, uh, it's something that they uh, 
go after him for it. Clearly, if you're a mobster, um, you don't uh, report all of the money you're making or have any real good way to explain how you got all that money. And that's what they go after him for. So what they finally convict him of, that is income tax evasion, is far less than the things that he'd actually done. Uh, but that's where he's finally arrested and, uh, and, and put into jail initially. But he becomes the absolute uh, symbol of, uh, of, of uh, gangsters, of prohibition, of, of where people think it all went wrong uh, and, and, and what happened. We've got another question to do with Al Capone, which is asked by Mr. I on Twitter. And he wants to know, was Al Capone's brother really a prohibition agent? Yeah, he was. Al Capone comes from a large family. He had nine siblings. Uh, his older siblings were born back in Sicily, including his older brother. His older brother grew up in the U.S. He was ashamed of his accent. He thought it held him back. He did everything he could to lose that accent, and he idolized cowboys. He changed his name then to uh, to uh, William Hart. Uh, Two-Gun Hart, uh, he became known as. Did Al Capone know him well? Probably not that well. He was he was quite a bit older, uh, and he becomes a federal agent, a prohibition agent, and is known again for extremely strong arm, tough tactics, two gun hearts, guy who patterns himself on cowboys and shoots up, uh, uh, you know, bootleggers is is his reputation. He ends up living the rest of his life as a uh, uh, agent on uh, Native American reservations, Bureau of Indian Affairs. Is who he ends up going to work for, but yeah, that's one of those those uh, little side stories, the the ironies of history. But yeah, Capone's older brother uh, was a, indeed a prohibition agent. Wow, that yeah, you couldn't make that up, could you? You you really couldn't. You know? um, <laughs> so you've mentioned the term bootlegger quite a lot throughout the recording of this podcast. Where does this term come from? It's hard to say. It, it seems to come out of the U.S. Civil War, and it has to do with soldiers who are smuggling alcohol into camp with them. That is, you put it in your boots or you put it in the, the leg of your trouser. Uh, you can fit a, a half pint or a pint bottle pretty easily into a pair of good boots, and that's where it comes from. So to bootleg is to smuggle alcohol, uh, is, is what it comes to mean. And that's who these guys are, people smuggling alcohol, essentially. And during Prohibition, where are they smuggling in from? From various points. It depends on where you're at in the country. And there are various famous bootleggers. So where did they, they get the alcohol? Um, first of all, in the, on the West Coast, a guy named Roy Olmsted in Seattle uh, begins to put together an operation where they're smuggling it in from Canada. And that's what they're doing is coming in with boats along Puget Sound, and they can bring in huge amounts that way, store it in warehouses and, and distribute it that way. Um, alcohol is also coming up from the Bahamas, uh, up from uh, you know, the, the, the Caribbean and, and into the North that way by so-called rum runners, uh, as they're called. And they develop boats that are faster than, than uh, pretty much any of the enforcement had. You know, the, the drug smugglers will, will learn their trade from, from the old rum runners. And they're running up from the Bahamas up the west coast um apparently you could see these boats at night if you stood out on the beach um three miles out is the end of the u.s coastal uh you know territorial waters and you could see the boats lined up 
out uh, out in the ocean. The most famous area is Rum Row, which is off Long Island. And you would take your boat out there and you could go boat to boat and you could shop. You could find the best prices. You could find what it is that, that you wanted uh, out there and uh, and bring it back in. You uh, you know, they had great uh, relationships with the sailors out there on their boats. The sailors would give the, the post to uh, uh, their customers. The customers would come in and put it in the post box for them and, and help them out. So it came in that way as well, up up through the, the Bahamas. Um, George Remus, who uh, who I mentioned before, was, was the so-called the, the king of the bootleggers, though. And he found another way to do this that was absolutely ingenious. Uh, he realized that there was a very big loophole in, in uh, the Volstead Act, and that is uh, large uh, organizations, distillers, what, what have you. They didn't have to, to get rid of the alcohol that was in their possession. They could lock it up, right? They could store it, and they could take it out of storage, but only for medical purposes, right? So if a pharmacy or something like that ordered the alcohol, well, they could could take that out. Well, what Remus realized is there were oceans of alcohol then locked up in warehouses around the U.S. Remus uh, was a German immigrant initially. He immigrated as a little boy, about three years old. And uh, he had been an attorney and, and a bunch of other things. Another of these people with remarkable capacity to organize. And he starts to put together an operation where he is both a pharmacist. He went and got himself a degree in pharmacy as well. He is both a pharmacist and he owns, starts buying up the big warehouses of alcohol. So he can then request the alcohol himself from his own warehouses. He loads the trucks, he sends them off, and he has his own people hijack the trucks. The trucks then go off to his huge warehouse facility. Now, he relocated from Chicago to Cincinnati, Ohio, because he realized that around there, there were so many distilleries and there was so much alcohol available. That's where it all was. Um, and, and he would go there. And so Remus starts using all of this, this alcohol that had been put away by the distilleries and stored um, and becomes the king of the bootleggers, making vast, vast sums of money in the process. As I say, he had paid off people at the very highest level. Jess Smith, working for the Attorney General, Harry Doherty, is taking huge payments from, from uh, George Remus, right, finally. Um, and that's how he does it, though, with alcohol that was already in the U.S. So those sort of three sources, smuggling from Canada, smuggling up from the Bahamas, the, the vast resources that are available, and then there's an entirely another strand, and that's what's available homemade. Okay, uh, that is the, the stills. Uh, there's a culture of, of making your own whiskey, making your own uh, alcohol that goes back to the 18th century anyway in places like Kentucky and Tennessee, uh, sort of legendary for making that, that stuff. And that's all possible as well, but it's a smaller source uh, also. Um, the big bootleggers, the smugglers like Olmsted, like Remus, like the, the, the people on the, the East Coast coming up from the Bahamas, also had the advantage of brand names, right? These are brand name alcohol. You knew what you were getting, okay? That's more expensive, uh, but you knew what you were getting. You knew where it had come from. You knew that it was safe. Uh, and it had all the glamour of the brand name attached to it. It showed that you had the money to buy that stuff. 
So the 20s, you know, there, there's a huge amount of money floating around because the economy is booming. It is a period where the consumer culture takes off like mad about all the things you own, all the flash, all the look. To have those labels as well uh, shows that you've made it. And the big, the big smugglers, the, those big bootleggers had that advantage as, as well as, as having the brand behind them. And, and so that's where it came from, largely. You mentioned people would turn to alcohol for medical purposes. And Ian Dawson, who wrote to us on Twitter, asks whether it's true that Winston Churchill was given a medical exemption to drink in Prohibition America. He, uh, yeah, he did. He, he had an exemption. A lot of people had that same exemption. It's called a prescription. Okay. And what happened to, to Churchill? Churchill had a very clear opinion about prohibition. He thought it was absolutely ridiculous, as you know, it's unsurprising. If you know much of anything about Churchill, uh, he called it an affront to the whole history of mankind. Uh, strong words, right? But what happened was he was speaking in the, in the U.S. In, in 1931. And he was on his way to a dinner uh, in, in New York, and he had gotten lost, and he got frustrated, and the cab driver didn't know where he was going, so he decided he was going to leap out of the car and go on foot. He got out, and uh, being British, he looked left rather than right. He saw no car coming from the left. Of course, the car was coming from the right that hit him at about 35 miles an hour, right? It was serious. Broken ribs, cut his head open, a lot of things. And so they took him to the hospital and patched him up. He went to Bermuda to, uh, to, to convalesce. Um, but when he came back, he went to a doctor and he got a prescription. <laughs> the prescription uh, said that uh, Mr. Churchill uh, needs alcohol for his convalescence, particularly at mealtimes. And so he, he had that. So it was at the, near the very end of, of Prohibition. So, so yeah, he did. He had a prescription. Uh, that allowed him to go to the pharmacy and, and uh, get, get what he wanted. And coming back again to look at speakeasies, uh, Ruth Wilson asked us on Twitter, is our image of the Roaring Twenties with cocktails and speakeasies wrong? It depends on how you imagine it to be. It's not wrong insofar as they were certainly there and there was a lot of them and there was a huge culture around this. Uh, as I said, uh, as I said before, there were somewhere in the neighborhood of 32,000 uh, speakeasies by the, the, the late 1920s. Now, a speakeasy could be anything. That could be somebody in an apartment with two bottles of, of whiskey uh, who opens up and wants to make some money. Or it could be the incredibly flashy houses uh, that we've all learned and, 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 and expect to see because those were there, too, with entertainment and everything else in them. So it was certainly there. Now, the first thing I think to think about with it is to realize that not everyone could afford this. Okay. These were expensive. They were flash. You know, these were the, the, the hot clubs of the day. And even to get in there, you had to have a password. You had to have the money. You had to have the look, uh, all of that. So when you see those, you know, you see old films, you see them done in movies and things. That was for a crowd that could afford it and a crowd that was hip enough to get in. Okay, for starters, but there were still a lot of people that qualify, just like you know, going out to the clubs in London or something is is now. There's still plenty of people that that can do that, and they do. Um, so so that's you know very much 
you know, part of the experience. I think it's also important that when you look at those those pictures of, of the speakeasies, that you're seeing something there that's much, much different than drinking before prohibition. Before prohibition, and the the, the problem that, that so much of the temperance movement was focused on was the saloon. The saloon was an all-male uh, institution. Uh, it was as rough as could be. Okay, there's fighting, there's swearing, there's everything. The only women there are prostitutes. Okay, it is as rough as can be. Um, that's not what you see in the speakeasies. And one of the real changes that happens in prohibition is women are going out too. Now that goes hand in hand with particularly a younger generation of women who are described as flappers or whatever you, you want to call it. They cut their hair, they wear those, those the short dresses, they dance the Charleston, they pull those hats on, and they're not going to be told what to do as generations, as they say generations of women have been before. So the idea that you could go out like that and, and, and be part of this, this scene with live entertainment and everything else is a real departure from anything that happened before. And that is, uh, has, has a huge amount to do with prohibition. Um, also, you know, again, sticking to New York City, this is the same time as the uh, so-called Harlem Renaissance. And the, the Harlem Renaissance is a, is a flowering of Black culture. In the starting in the 1920s, really a little bit before, and going through the 1930s, you know, a younger generation of African Americans had never been enslaved. They wanted to move away from that history. They wanted to celebrate their African roots, and they wanted to celebrate their culture. Well, you know, in the the poet Langston Hughes, who's very much part of this, in his words, you know, this is when Harlem was in vogue, and it was and. All those white people from, from uh, the rest of New York find themselves going up to Harlem. They love dancing there, uh, much to the entertainment of the African-Americans uh, who were much better dancers. Uh, they love dancing there. They love the music. They love all of it. Jazz as, as a cultural form really takes off then in the 20s. And that's where you could go hear it. And it's connected to those speakeasies. Right. So it, it has a huge influence uh, that way as well. But keep in mind, you know, all of my examples I've given you, these are New York, uh, you know, Chicago, uh, wherever the big cities. It's certainly there. Small towns, they, they don't see that kind of thing. Right. And again, the people that you see in those speakeasies very often are, are very flashy, very well healed people who are very much want to be part of a scene. Um, you know, they're they're. In some ways, I suppose you, th you think of them as, as, quote, you know, the beautiful people. Um, a lot of that is enshrined by the New Yorker magazine, a fantastic column called Tables for Two uh, that, uh, that was written, that, that, that appeared in the magazine. The New Yorker appears in 1925 as a new magazine for urban, sophisticated people. And it, it still is that. Uh, to a great degree. And anyway, one of their first writers and first stars is a woman named Lois Long. Lois Long is only 23 years old, mind. She is extremely well-spoken. She's attractive. She is on top of what there is to do in New York. And she writes under the name Lipstick. And she starts writing in, in uh, Tables for Two about the various speakeasies, about the clubs, about the music, about the dancing, about the people. And she's a fantastic writer. So much of that sort of big city flash, sophistication, all of it that goes with the speakeasy is down to Lois Long's uh, very able pen and very strong imagination. 
So moving on now to look at the end of prohibition. So this is another popular online search question. Why and how did prohibition come to an end? Prohibition comes to an end for for a variety of of reasons. Um, First of all, the violence and and the hypocrisy becomes absolutely unavoidable. As I say, some of the numbers that that I gave you before about the beer wars in Chicago, the the number of gangsters being killed. Of course, the most famous instance of of gang-related violence in Prohibition is the the St. Valentine's Day Massacre, where seven men are shot down uh, in Chicago. This was a hit uh, set up to take out Al Capone's chief rival. That's a guy named Bugs Moran. Uh, you know, they have great names, these guys. Anyway, to take out Bugs Moran, Moran wasn't actually there at the time, and Al Capone wasn't there. He was in Florida on holiday. He says he had nothing to do with it. No one knows who set this up or who called it, but seven gangsters were, were shot down, and famous pictures that everyone has seen of blood all over the place and, and, and gunned down in a, in a warehouse. Um, that's the most famous instance, but the violence is, is everywhere. And it's clear people are getting fed up uh, about this. The corruption in police departments, the corruption everywhere, the, the sense that people lose respect for the laws. And that's one of the themes that, that we continue to hear uh, in, in, in all kinds of prohibition laws, that is drug prohibition and everything else, that, that it teaches people not to respect the laws when, when something is so blatantly opposed to them. So, so that's one angle, the, the violence and the obvious corruption that's gone with it. Uh, Secondly, women begin to turn their backs on prohibition. And this is a huge step. There's a woman named Pauline Sabin, who was a New York socialite who never was was particularly keen on on prohibition at all, was always opposed to it. This is a very well-spoken, erudite, sophisticated person who absolutely was opposed to it uh, from, from the beginning. Um, she had been a Republican Party organizer, and she decides, however, finally that she's had enough and is going to step out and start to speak out against it. And she puts together an organization of American women to say that it, women aren't just the Women's Christian Temperance Union, the WCTU. We don't agree with, with uh, prohibition. This is actually doing more harm to our sons than, than a, a regulated system. Uh, would ever have done, and we're opposed to it. And it grows uh, in power alongside the, the recognition of the violence and everything else. So suddenly it becomes possible for American women now to stand up and uh, say that they aren't part of the WCTU and they don't agree, right? Um, and thirdly, uh, the Great Depression, right? The, the, the crash, you know, symbolizes uh, the, 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 you know, economic calamity of the late 1920s and into the early 30s. And the the brewing industry, the distilling industry represents a whole lot of jobs, not just in making alcohol, okay, but in making barrels, in driving trucks, in running running bars and clubs and and pubs. Uh, Everything that goes with the the manufacture and distribution of alcohol is huge. It's also a major source of of tax income, okay? And it's clear that uh, uh, that that uh, that's something that would be available if simply they would end depression. Now there had been, uh, you know, wet agitation. The people who were opposed to it uh, for a long time in the political realm. Al Smith, 
uh, ran for president and was beaten by Herbert Hoover in 1928. Uh, and he was very much a wet figure and had been that way. The Democratic Party had been uh, fairly wet, at least through that period and through nominating Al Smith. Franklin Roosevelt runs for president in 1932. He's noncommittal. He wants to stay out of it, uh, doesn't want to get involved in these kinds of arguments. It had been incredibly ugly. Smith didn't get to be president. He was beaten partly because of the, the wet status, but he's a Catholic as well. And the Republicans ran against them on that, particularly in the South. As I said before, the Ku Klux Klan was a, a big uh, backer of prohibition, and they ran horrendous uh, anti-Catholic uh, campaigns in the South. And, and poor old Al Smith, you know, when you, you hear him speak, it's, it's worth it to look him up and just listen to him in a recording somewhere. Because, you know, in those days, they only had radio. It's the only way you'd ever be exposed to him, probably. There was no television. He has one of the strongest New York accents you've ever heard in your life. You know, people don't speak like Al Smith anymore. And it's great to listen to him. And so he lost. Okay. But he went to work on Roosevelt then as well. Uh, and, and, you know, he was a leader of the Democratic Party still. Um, he'd been the governor of the state of New York. And he went to work on Roosevelt. And uh, Roosevelt ends up coming along and huge arguments in, in, in the, the Democratic Convention. But finally, Roosevelt comes out in favor of, of the so-called beer bill. And the beer bill made it possible to brew low alcohol 3.2% beer and sell it. And Roosevelt comes out with that initially. And eventually then uh, backs an amendment to repeal the 18th Amendment, uh, which had made alcohol illegal. So there's a lot of reasons why people start to turn on us. You know, the, the, the growing recognition of the, the, the violence and the corruption, women begin to start to turn away from it and, and certainly have a vehicle then where they can identify themselves. And then also uh, in Depression America, the number of jobs represented uh, by, by brewing and distilling and the tax money means a lot. We've had a couple of questions sent in from listeners to do with taxes. So Lynne Kay asked on Instagram, how much tax did the US government lose? And AgroBiodiverse asked us via Twitter, was there a significant decline in state or federal revenue or were there compensatory taxes levied? Uh, in some ways, those, those answer each other. First of all, it's a huge amount of money that was lost uh, from the, the, the uh, taxation of alcohol. Uh, but was there a compensatory tax? There, there was indeed. Um, let me explain this. Uh, the, the brewers who, the, the, the Brewers Association that I'd mentioned before, led by Adolphus Bush. Adolphus Bush was a man who thought that he could turn back the entire temperance wave himself. And he could do it basically through bribery uh, and through the vast amount of money that he threw around. Again, he is the, uh, he, he runs the uh, Anheuser-Busch Brewery, which of course still exists today and with a very famous brand of beer, uh, the most famous American brand of beer, right? Um, and uh, he thought that he could turn back the entire thing. Why was he so confident? Well, for a lot of reasons. They could do things like control newspapers, again, the amount of advertising, the amount of money they could throw around. He made huge amounts of money. It didn't bother him in the least to throw around as, as whatever it took to get their way. But the thing that he always had going for him, right, that the brewers had was the tax, because the, there were years when the U.S. government 
made as much as 70% of their income on alcohol tax. And he knew that there was no way that they would ever ban alcohol as long as it was that uh, kind of a source of wealth. But a very bad thing happened to them in 1913. And that was the passage of an income tax for the first time, right? And so U.S. income taxes suddenly come into play. The dry forces led by Wayne Wheeler, who again was absolutely ruthless and seemed to know everything, knew that that could happen, right? So who's pushing income tax in the U.S.? Well, the anti-saloon league, for one, because Wheeler knew that the moment that they get in uh, the uh, uh, an income tax, that that means that there would, the dependence on alcohol tax would fall through the floor as it did, right? And it made it, it made it possible then to do that, along with you know some of the other factors that we talked about, um, and and particularly the, uh, the, the the fact that the the Brewers Association conducted its business in German. They were behind Germany in the First World War. They were all about German culture. That's and then that's fine. And they 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 were proud of that, but, but they backed Germany in the First World War. That was never going to go well for them. I mean, you know, it was unclear which side the U.S. was going to jump in on in the First World War until quite a bit later, but not the side that the Brewers backed. Um, and so the tax uh, situation is, is exactly that. They, they is, is what made it possible. Um, yeah, the government lost a huge amount of money in alcohol tax, but they made it and more back through income tax. And I think I might already know the answer to this question, but Thomas Kendall asks on Twitter, was there anyone at the time who thought prohibition was a success? I think it would be very hard to argue that it was, but that doesn't mean that people wanted to uh, uh, to give up on it. The current president of the, the WCTU uh, you know, sat in the gallery in Congress when they approved the amendment to, to submit it to the states uh, to, uh, to, to repeal uh, the 18th Amendment, and she sat and wept. Um, many people were, were hugely, hugely disappointed and let down. Uh, did they think it worked? They thought that it could be revised. Unfortunately for the Dries, um, they were incredibly, incredibly committed and absolutely unwilling to compromise on anything. And they put themselves into a corner. Uh, there were plenty of people who thought, no, we could revise these laws. The, the, you know, it's not working out well, but there are things we could do to change it. And so there are a lot of people that would have still thought that, certainly. And I think there's another small but important uh, constituency here that we have to think about of who did it work for. Uh, and those are people who describe themselves as having a habit they couldn't control, right? That is what would come to be more and more clearly known as, as alcoholics, uh, which is an older term, starts in the 1850s, but but uh, but picks up, up steam. And for those people, was it a, a success? Well, for many of them, it was, because it kept them away from that thing that was destroying their lives. And I don't think we should, should simply forget those people because they're in a minority, but these are, are people, you know, with, with an illness and uh, keeping alcohol away helps uh, help many of them. So for them, it, it probably was, but that's a very small minority of the, the, the population. And I suppose for the gangsters as well. I mean, it's not the success <laughs> yeah. that the dries wanted, but I, right. they benefited sure. amazingly, didn't they? Yeah, they, they sure did. I mean, that makes a huge difference in organized crime. Before prohibition, look, you know, crime is there. You can make money at crime, prostitution, gambling, uh, you know, various sort of 
you know, moving stolen goods, the, the things that they do, but you're not going to get rich at it, at least not, not wildly, you know, unfathomably rich. Uh, but with prohibition, you could. Um, with the kind of money that was was able that they were able to make, uh, they were able to do that, and it took a great deal of organization in order to to make it all work. That is coordination between the various rival crime groups, uh, distribution, bookkeeping, uh, whatever it takes to get your fleet of, uh, of of lorries from the Canadian border to the distribution points. Right, it takes a huge amount of skill to do that, and. We're very often talking about immigrant populations who had been held out of, of uh, uh, a lot of the promises that they thought was coming their way, uh, that they thought were coming their way in America. And uh, they put together these huge organizations in order to uh, get the job done. And they did. And they learned a lot from that. And they went on from there as well, again, shifting very easily into other prohibited substances, uh, particularly into drugs. So you've touched on this a bit in your last answer, but I think a good final question is from Newton007. And he asked us on Twitter, what is the legacy of prohibition? The legacy of prohibition. Prohibition, you know, people look at it as as this great failure. Um I think that we need to, to to nuance that a lot. We can do it by looking at the pro, at the, the legacy. Um, on the one hand, if the goal is to decrease alcohol consumption, okay, it's successful. It it, it initially, at least, alcohol consumption drop, drops by about a third in the United States. People who drank drank more. Uh, it was dangerous in many ways. Uh, you could buy, you know, if you weren't buying the branded alcohol from, you know, I don't know how to say, uh, uh, reputable, uh, reputable criminals, um, you could get anything. And there are instances of people drinking horrible things. It was something called Ginger Jake uh, in the Midwest that was laced with wood alcohol and caused a horrible nerve disorder called Jake Leg. Uh, that's sort of the most famous instance, but it was uh, it was tough. But people who drank, uh, they they tended to drink more. Nonetheless, uh, drinking levels dropped. It took until the 1970s until the average consumption of alcohol was at the same level it was before prohibition uh, in the U.S., which is striking. And I don't think that that people very often realize the impact that it does have on alcohol consumption. It caused a lot of other things to change. The saloon never came back, right? The rough, male-only, fighting, drinking, you know, disaster. Uh, that it, I, I say disaster, you know, um, often, and certainly in the eyes of temperance uh, people. It, it had its good sides as well. Union organizing, finding out who's hiring and where, that kind of thing uh, is, is done through saloons. Uh, as well. But nonetheless, the saloon never comes back. Uh, women continue to go out to drink. This does have a uh, calming element on, on men's drinking. The, the, the fighting, the, as bad as it can be, all of that uh, is uh, nonetheless uh, drops uh, quite a lot. Um, Many states and many areas still have very strong anti-alcohol laws. Uh, you know, it's it's different in, in different states. People who have gone on a ski holiday in Utah, for instance, will know that you have to buy alcohol from a state store, uh, restaurants, you have to go to a package shop uh, in order to bring your bottle with you. Uh, as prohibition laws often do, you often end up drinking more 
You know, you walk into a restaurant with an entire bottle of vodka and all they're doing is charging you, you know, orange juice to, uh, to mix your vodka into. You end up sitting there and, and you can end up drinking a lot more. I, you know, uh, went to high school and university in, in Oregon. And uh, at least then it may still be the same. Uh, the Oregon Liquor Control Commission uh, run, ran state uh, liquor stores, and that's where you'd have to go. You could buy beer in the grocery store, uh, but uh, alc- but but uh, spirits you have to buy in uh, in a package shop. So that kind of regulation is still there. Um, you know, there's actually a lot more regulation of alcohol after prohibition than, than during it. Um, things like age, things like opening hours, all of that kind of stuff can be controlled when there's that, when it's legal and the government can go in and regulate it. When it was illegal, it was everywhere and everything. Anybody could, could get a hold of whatever they could get a hold of because it's all criminal anyway, right? So all of those sort of controls on drinking are there. And also, I think it's important to keep in mind that the temperance movement is still very, very active, uh, still around us. You know, when you, you teach these things or talk to students about it, people will all laugh and, and think, oh, yeah, a time when the, the, the you know, the, the, the country people and their pitchforks all got angry and they tried to ruin the city people's fun. Uh, that's all gone now, though, isn't it? Uh, well, it's it, it, the, the, the temperance movement is still very active and it's still very powerful. We have it in Britain. Uh, scientific temperance, though, rather than moral, uh, tends to be dominant. You know, we hear all, all the time about 21 units, 14 units, whatever the unit number of drinks that we're supposed to drink uh, in terms of health is. Um, that's that's scientific temperance and, and is still uh, you know, clearly there. There's also moral temperance. Again, I'll you know stick with the British uh, examples. You know, how many times do you watch uh, a documentary on television about uh, binge drinking. And there are the youth. There they are rolling in the streets. Again, it's completely sexualized. Young women uh, wearing, you know, not enough clothing to keep warm, you know, on a cold Newcastle evening, let's say. And uh, there they are really drunk. And again, there's the moral thing about uh, heavy drinking. Are these real problems? Uh, Sure, at, at some level they are. But again, we still have those same uh, kind of things. I suppose the last point you know to make is is you know thinking about that, particularly in the U.S. context, is that the the, the biggest temperance organization in the U.S. Uh, has the, the WCTU still exists, uh, and they're still in the temperance game, although they're much smaller than they were. But is uh, something called Mothers Against Drunk Driving, and they. Uh, were incredibly influential in the late 20th century, started by a woman whose daughter was killed by a drunk driver. And they did things like push through laws in the U.S. where many states allowed people to drink at the age of 18. Uh, But Mothers Against Drunk Driving went to work with incredibly uh, well-orchestrated television campaigns, advertising campaigns. And they pushed through legislation that uh, basically said, you don't get any federal highway money unless you raise the drinking age in your state to 21. So the state's free to say you can drink at 18, but uh, you won't get any federal highway money. Well, needless to say, to say all 50 states uh, have uh, put in the age of 21 as the legal drinking age. So those organizations still exist, uh, still exist with us today. But uh, prohibition did make a huge difference on the way people drink, on the amount that they drink, on the way that it's it's regulated. 
That's great. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's been lovely to have you as a guest. Thanks. It was great to be here. That was Dr. Timothy Hickman. He's a senior lecturer at Lancaster University who specialises in drug addiction, drug laws and drug culture in American society. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley. We'll be back tomorrow with an episode on the Cuban Missile Crisis. We'd love to know what you think about History Extra. So we're running a survey to ask you what you love about the podcast and what you think we could do better. It should only take five minutes to fill out and you'll be entered into a prize draw for the chance to win one of seven £100 Voucher Express gift cards. The prize draw is open to UK residents only and runs until Sunday the 16th of May. So to have your say, just head to bit.ly forward slash HEPodSurvey where you can also find the full terms and conditions. That's bit.ly slash HEPodSurvey.